hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chits, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello, and welcome to episode 405 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young adult cancer coming to you from downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. And on this episode, be your best advocate. Ariella Chevelle is a self-described patient turned oncology geek. Ariella joins us live in studio to talk about being a champion for patient advocacy and her work with leading organizations such as the Cancer Research Institute to share her immunotherapy success story. Survivors followed on returning champion and Team Stupid Cancer rock star, Paul Berman. Hello. Hello, Paul. It's Hello. Hello, Ariella. Hello there. I love having live in-studio guests. It's a full house. And Yay. it's hot in the studio. Very hot. <laughs> toasty. Yes, it gets toasty. Who would have thought not having windows in a studio would have been a problem ever? Well, <laughs> something about that air circulation. Yeah. What, what is, is that? No one yeah. needs that. Hence why this room was free with no rent for three years. All right. Just Cheap the, radio sounds yeah. good. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, yeah, here we are. And uh, it's exciting. It's December. It is uh, simply having a wonderful it's the Christmas most time. most <laughs> wonderful time. time of the year. Yes, it is. Very exciting. Very There'd exciting. be holiday magic in the air. I know. Unless and you go Christmas. near Trump Tower. Oh, God. Oh, get I, hey. Ooh, too soon. Oh, that, that gets one of these. And one of these. And one of these. Just keep keep watching White Christmas on yeah. repeat. That's what I do. <laughs> Don't make me make the soundboard again, bro. Ah. Yeah. Hello. On the couch from Canada, <laughs> Laurel Sally. Hi. <laughs> I got the comfy spot today. You did get the comfy spot. And uh, no Wimmer. Surprise. Uh, hello, hello. Surprise uh, presence while, here. Yeah. yeah. How you been? I've been doing well. Good. Thank you. That's all I care about. <laughs> so we have a, a great show on patient advocacy, and, and Paul has a wonderful story turned patient advocate 
and Ariella, whom I just met at the Washington Post live epic thing that happened in D.C. last week. Uh, we, we literally met like first date at the Washington Post. I was quite enamored by not just your story, but your poise and how you've channeled your nerddom into real cancer advocacy. And it's exciting that we align on so many different things that are a little nerdy in the geek world of cancer that kind of take the humanity out of it a little bit, but we forgive ourselves because, you know, we were trying to help people. But we want to talk about, um, you know, real things that really happened. And, you know, from a Washington Post event perspective, you know, did you guys watch it? Asking the staff and Paul. I have not had a chance to watch it yet. Okay. It's been a, it's been on my list to watch. Well, there, we sort of had this big thing coming up this week. Well, yeah, I mean, we could that that whole CancerCon launch tomorrow. Yeah, small beans, small beans. We'll give you. So as soon as the the launch is up, it's it's on my queue to watch. No, I yeah, mean our I'll segment. Jump on that train also. I felt like our segment went like it took like five minutes, but it really is like thirty four minutes of yeah. real people talking, and it was good. I like how you specify real people. Like there are real they're not androids. They this are real thoughts, real people. Well, no, yeah, no androids. No, but we were talking <laughs> You'd be about surprised. this. Story. I, I, you're right. You should not have said real people. But we were just commenting how the the panels that led up to the afternoon session were very academic, very clinical, very business, and very dispassionate for the mm-hmm. actual people. So again, like that's okay because their end game is the same as our end game. But to hear it spoken there were you know a lot of reporters in the room a lot of some of the i think some public was invited to come in mm-hmm. largely a big media event there were some uh, staffers on the hill and interns that came i think there was we had one republican uh senator or congressman on one of the mm-hmm. panels in the morning um from jersey right he was from jersey yeah, and then we also had um, Marsha Blackburn over, um, and then we also had a Debbie Wasserman And Debbie Schultz. Wasserman Schultz was, so that was there, yes. Awesome yeah, to see, see them both there and then see the other folks. Right, so they were able to weave science with policy and, and you know, yes, clearly things went political because the uncertainties that are happening for next year, but everything was really level set around unifying that we're in a really interesting space science-wise for the first time in decades that the burden of proof now falls on the industry to make sure that people who get sick are navigated to these magic elf star wars technology <laughs> things maybe star trek not star wars you know no lightsabers but maybe, maybe phases not yet. yeah yeah but <laughs> we'll it, get there next. yeah but again it was a phenomenal event they got you know tens of thousands of media impressions i i think i probably 140 linkedin requests on like that Not next day. <laughs> I mean, considering I was on a red eye that morning and I got to the building at six in the morning and I just hung out in the, in the lobby till like <laughs> seven thirty. Yeah, it was. It was. I was. It was privileged to be there, but I'm really happy they chose to have the counterpoint to to kind of button up the end there with real voices. I can say too, following along on Twitter. People were really excited when it was, they were calling it like the survivor panel. And they were like, we're so excited to hear their voices as well. Because I think sometimes when it is so scientific, there's so much 
like science jargon to it. It's hard for regular people following along to understand even when they want to and try to, but to actually hear stories that they can put themselves into that position. I think that that was the feedback that we were getting on Twitter. A lot of people tagging us being like, we're so thankful that these voices are up there as well to kind of like you were saying, Matt, to kind of really like round out the story to look at not just the science or medical side of it, but to really hear from the people who have been through it. Right. One of the things I love about uh, CancerCon and OMG also, just to bring that full circle, because, you know, we have those panels there that are constantly about survivors telling your stories and survivors talking about things they've had to deal with and things that they, you know, have had to go through in order to get themselves the right treatment or to get themselves back to normal and get themselves back to their lives. And, you know, so often... Uh, I hear that th that's the best feedback that I get about. Thank God that we had that session. That was so helpful for me. Like I'm going through so much right now and just hearing everyone else's stories was such a, you know, breakthrough for me in order to be able to keep me going and to keep me uh, uh, moving forward and realize what I have to do to, to, you know, move on with my life and, 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 you know, start getting my life back together. Well, I mean, storytelling is, is currency and, you know, we were that, so and also, but but uh, content is currency too. So the first part was the content of what the science and research and data shows, but the humanity, which was <laughs> followed by Fran Drescher and Taboo from Black Eyed Peas, <laughs> who totally co-opted his session about the the Dakota Pipeline, which was which kind of threw everyone for a loop when they were there. But it was it was really meaningful, and we got our picture with Fran, as we wanted. Yes, we wanted number to. one goal. Yeah, and no. I, I and I posted on social that I, I met Fran 13 years ago, so we are now a full bar mitzvah age larger than we were in 20. Yeah, so the AB of that one. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, she looks great. She's still telling an amazing story. She's really made a difference in. Um, she does a lot of urban and inner city education. She has something called the Fran Vans, which go around and talk to communities around the country like it's really good stuff that she's put nice. together absolutely it's just the way she connects with people she feels like you really are you know her number one focus she wants to learn about you and how she can help you which right. is incredible and it's wonderful she's putting that out into the world so props to the washington post for choosing to have one of their washpole live events focus on this um one of the most intriguing tweets that came out of it was around how this is a welcoming narrative chasing cancer mm. instead of curing cancer. And that it, there was a lot of pickup from this one guy that tweeted like it, it was very refreshing to see that we're not chasing cure anymore, but we're trying to chase the life of what that means. So, yeah, again, difference. they rounded it out. They did everything right and it was wonderful. I hope they do it again. Fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. Exactly. How can you Washington Post? Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of CancerCon, which is our international convention, um, it's happening. It is happening. How Mallory <laughs> perks right up. Yeah. <laughs> it's going on. It's it's all in the works. So we don't timestamp our podcasts, but as of this recording, we are launching tomorrow. Um, yes. And <laughs> so as you listen to this podcast, it will be open <laughs> registration. Well, depending on how early you listen. <laughs> That's true. That is true. That is true. Uh, CancerCon 2017 is our 20th conference in the 10 years of wow. cancer. Wow. And we did the math and it was real, not math facts. This is legitimately <laughs> the 20th conference we've done since 2008 when it was born as the OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults in Times Square at the Marriott Marquis. And 225 young adults showed up out of nowhere with no marketing to a day conference and everything changed in May of 2008. 
And here awesome. we are all these years later. And as the largest event, what uh, there's new language that I'm really excited about. It's like the most impactful, the most exciting patient event in the world, 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 world. <laughs> hey, you forgot the world. echo on your voice for that. The guy. world domination, the yeah. most visible and influential event of its kind for millennial health and the young adult cancer movement. Exactly. Exactly. And we are going to have a full-time PR agency next year working with us on optics and public relations and Laurel's going to work on storytelling. We have a whole photojournalistic component that's going to be launching next year to drive registration and exhibiting and our nonprofit partners and the academic research that goes on. Uh, Ariella, for your records, uh, CancerCon is the first academically evidence-based event in oncology. Now I'm excited. <laughs> Outside of the clinic, we were able to prove over two years pre and post study that simply by attending the conference improves patient outcomes on certain psychosocial markers. Fantastic. Yeah. It's no, a humble brag. Then add in all the fun stuff. <laughs> so it, it's it's a really big deal. And and um, you know, Paul, you're you're here. We're gonna tell your story in a minute, but you came twenty eleven was your first one. Yep. And that I think we hit four fifty that year here in the city. It was very crowded. Yeah, it was it was not everything. a small event for sure. No, it, it was not a small event. Or maybe that, it was just a small space and it seemed like a very big event. But that was the year of the tsunami and the boat cruise, which oh, we're never doing so, again. Well, it's a story, though. <laughs> yeah, it is a story. The boat cruise, yes. Kenny and his plastic bag uh, trying to uh, weather the storm. Well, you know, in 2009, the Bare Naked Ladies gave a concert for the OMG Summit for like 185 or 200 people there. And it, the, the Bare Naked Ladies do a cruise every year. Uh, it's just that the band goes on a cruise with all their fans. and they just do. So I was talking to Kevin uh, from the band about, like, would they – could we do a cancer-tastic cruise with the Bare Naked Ladies? And it didn't work out, but we still wanted to do a cancer-tastic cruise to nowhere. So we chartered the yacht <laughs> out of the harbor. But it was like a, a hurricane tsunami that just struck the city. What? And, and we weathered the storm, literally. But at the very least, yeah, you know, you the did. yacht went out. The Everyone uh, who still wanted to get there got there, and there was plenty of free booze. That's yeah. what counts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are very few people who were there these days that remember it oh. and remember it well. They it's do etched in my memory. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> but yeah. So, what do we have in store for CancerCon this uh, spring, Mel? We have some uh, pretty exciting stuff. We have some new sessions this year. Um, we're bringing back some of the our really great content uh, in some of our other breakouts. We have some new social events and tours. Uh, we'll be doing a movie night with a double feature. Oh wow. All exciting stuff. Is it the super eight of my family at camp? Uh, it is not the the movies. The movies are in, I came uh, in a close second, Matt. Close <laughs> second. The the movie choices are in progress, but uh, we have a couple ideas. So there'll be a double feature. Very nice. And costumes are encouraged. Oh dear. Oh I mean, yeah. We'll have to know what the movie choices. Oh, are. Oh yeah. Of no, they'll yeah. they'll be released. Excellent. Um, but we have some really great content. Um, there's going to be a session on feeding your soul, which is self-care and nutrition, um, a session on journaling with our friend from YSC, Jean Rowe, that we're very excited about. Um, and then, you know, bringing back the classics, all of the just for sessions, um, which are usually everyone's favorites. Those yep. are the just for guys, just for girls, just for caregivers, very intimate, very closed door, not mo- not recorded and all the magic comes out on those sessions oh yeah really amazing and there's some great things uh coming down the pipeline as well for our general sessions right and we are going to be doing an uh, a, a panel on uh advocacy we are going to be doing a panel on advocacy right so this is where 
again, Ariel is has going to explode by meeting all these people for the first time. I love best friends for life and advocacy. Mm. So Kate Houghton from Critical Mass is going to be on a panel, which is incredibly exciting. She um, was in D.C. Uh, for many, many years. She has a lot of the insights into how bills become laws, you know, <laughs> whatever that Saturday morning cartoon was, <laughs> you know, Schoolhouse Rock. Oh, she knows yeah. all that stuff and she knows how to make influence roads with policymakers and what it looks like. And part of our, our long game is to mandate fertility preservation costs for all young adults who get cancer. Um, and that's uh, more, more data that we did that I didn't disclose. Oh, I did disclose at the Washington Post. 87% mm-hmm. of women felt uninformed despite informed consent around reproductive risk from, from treatments, let alone being given options. So there's that, that policy narrative is going to be discussed and again, this goes back to how many of our attendees are returning champions who've been there several years, but just want to figure out how they can get involved in the greater change for our generation. But let's not forget Julie Larson, uh, social worker to the stars. Yes. Uh, Sage Bolte, social worker to the stars. Dr. Sage Bolte. Yes. Uh, nice. And Tom Berlin coming back from IPEC coaching. Yep. Three She'll- rock stars. She'll be doing a great session as well for our general session. It's We have a really great lineup plan. Uh, and what's really exciting is for last time for the first year, we did 90-minute sessions. And we had one 90-minute breakout session. This year, we will have two 90-minute breakout sessions. So it gives a little bit more time to delve deeper into the topic topics everyone wants to know more about. Amazing, incredibly. And, and the social activities, are we doing karaoke again? We will be having another night at the Hard Rock. There may or may not be karaoke, and I may or may not be advocating for karaoke. Big time. Karaoke that was good and times. pub trivia, as always, must be staples. Oh, we are not doing pub trivia this what? year. Uh, we are, we're mixing it up a little bit. We oh, no. will be doing the movie night instead of pub trivia. Uh, Melinda, Melinda Hood might be devastated. We'll break it to our <laughs> but, but there will be costumes. Okay. I yeah. mean, costumes. But it goes beyond. I mean, I, I always hearkened OMG back in the day to college, where you go to college, to, and if you learn, it's nice, but it's the community that helps you grow up and become yourself, and that's really CancerCon. And people actually do learn and take away amazing things by going to it over three and a half days, but it's, it is the community that truly changes your life. And, and you know, I'm Paul, you've been going yeah, many, many years. Yeah, I for that one. Yeah. But, I mean, you're a returning champion, so can you talk to us about what it was like to go the first time, and now you're coming for, like, the sixth time? Yeah, I have to count on my fingers for a second. Um, I did the math right. <laughs> I think uh, I did the math right. That's that's about right. Well, if you if you throw in some of the OMG East, but, um, yeah, so uh, back when I first started, it was uh, the OMG conferences here in New York and then the ones in, in Las Vegas and... Um, you know, for the first while, it was uh, a little overwhelming, as I imagine most first timers would feel, uh, just uh, getting thrust into a whole group of people where they don't know anyone and they have this uh, condition or diagnosis that they're uh, potentially awkward about talking about because they feel like no one else around them is really getting them or they don't really know themselves what they're fully dealing with and they just have enough dealing with it on their own and they don't really think they want to hear anyone else talk about their issues or, or, you know, no one else is going to help, help you with your problem. Right. But, uh, you know, when I went there for the first time, I was kind of in that mindset also. And I'm like, but you know, let's try it out. Let's see but how you it were goes. also like fresh meat right out of the grist mill, right? You were just, <laughs> I was, yeah. I was still in treatment actually. Um, or maybe I was just right out of treatment because I had just finished my radiation. I think, uh, right when OMG 2011 happened, uh, that year, that was April of 11. So, um, yeah, it was, 
you know, didn't know what to expect. Didn't even know I'd be able to go out um, in a whole big crowd of people. But uh, I made it out there. I got to go to all the different sessions about uh, how to uh, navigate through costs and uh, and different life issues and how to talk to partners and friends and and date uh, with a cancer diagnosis and all that stuff. Um, oh, dating is a problem with cancer when you're not 80? Yeah, who would have thought that? <laughs> Doctors don't tell you that? Uh, no, no one, no one actually <laughs> discusses that stuff. Like when I, when I had the diagnosis, no one was worried about that. No one cared about whether I would bank sperm or not. Um, right. It would be about, you know, you need to get your chemo tomorrow. I'm like, well, hold on a second. I would like to know if that's prudent. So you had um, Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's right. So we we talk about how the you know all these all this talk about prevention, early detection, risk management. You can't do that with blood cancers. Well, uh, certainly not the way it was described to me. Especially, I had it. <clears throat> I had a very bulky form of Hodgkin's. So I was diagnosed with uh, type two BX, which is uh, the badass mofo of right. uh, type two B. Not the good cancer, quote unquote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not like your uh, melanoma, like you called the yeah, the, yeah. the tiny little thing on your head that you got removed. Yep. Um, Sorry to any melanoma Thanks survivors. for the trigger, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, your unicorn horn. It is my unicorn horn, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, so I had the really bulky um, Hodgkin's that was wrapped around my heart. It was like 10 inches long. And um, they basically said, you need to get chemo tomorrow. Uh, right. You don't have time to, to wait or think about it. Like you, you could die. So, you know, once you let that sink in for a second, well, what are your options really? So you have to... Uh, hope that your doctor is uh, is thinking about your the rest of your life, not just you know surviving surviving the short term. And you you take their advice and you you move forward with treatment. Well said. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Ariella, you also blood cancer. Yes, indeed. Also, Hodgkin's uh, was a two A, I believe, oh. initially, and then you know we went. You're like neighbors, two A and two yeah, B on the same floor. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the block. Now, uh, glad we both moved off that street. Yeah. You know, it was, it was getting kind of uh, moxious there, but yeah, you know, starting out there. Um, you know, it was built to me, in fact, as a good cancer, not by my oncologist, fortunately, but by everyone else who like Googled what oh, Hodgkin's lymphoma was. Yeah. Well, that's like, the worst. oh yeah, like. You're gonna be great, like ninety percent. You know, walk yeah, off into the sun. You. Like, yep. congratulations for not getting a worse one. I was like, oh, that that's nice. Thank you so much. I'm Tell that to that. the however many rounds of chemo and radiation you have yeah. to get in order to you know get through your treatment and still be part of that ninety something percent. Indeed, right. and that's what you know. What was initially said to me was like, yeah, you know, do some chemo, do some radiation, and that that's it yep. for most people. Um, Unfortunately, that was not how things ended up shaking up. You know, over a dozen treatments later, uh, you know, all the clinical trials, targeted treatments, radiation, and then immunotherapy. Now I'm in a good place. But right. uh, yeah, that was not anticipated when I first heard that diagnosis. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, that's the thing too. We, so this 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 show is about advocacy, which can mean different things to different people. When I first got into advocacy, it meant forcing DC to do the right thing for patients and payers and whatnot. But then I realized this, how do you make cancer suck less for the next you? And the beauty of the Human Genome Project from many, many years ago, it has finally yielded real science around better treatments. The challenge is they're not typically covered and or doctors are either disincentivized or not aware that there are options to patients out there 
And we talked about this fail-first model, and I, I won't get too wonky on this, but it basically means that if you you have to go on standard treatment and then relapse mm-hmm. to qualify for a drug you might not be able to afford. Isn't that crazy? And But there's, there's actually there's hope because there's now one drug, and I think I don't remember if this was specifically mentioned at the Washington Post, for lung cancer, which has been uh, allowed to be first-line. So the first immunotherapy for first-line in lung cancer is now a thing. So it could set a trend where other things that you might qualify for, which would be genomic, which goes back to immunotherapy, and I want Ariella to talk about that. You know, we, we, people ask me, well, what is immunotherapy? And I say, well, just think of yourself as becoming more like Wolverine, where you self-heal. Just not quite Hugh Jackmanish, but... That should sell everyone. I know, right? Okay, just- yeah, me as Wolverine <laughs> sold... <laughs> So why don't you talk about immunotherapy and your work advocating for that? Because you are a you know a a, 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 a byproduct positive. Yes, indeed. Byproduct of that. Hello, I'm a byproduct. Yes. <laughs> no, you you are a <laughs> r- remarkable case study for fighting for that and getting what you needed. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I know. As someone who's had has sampled, you know, in the buffet of cancer treatments yeah. that you could possibly, you know, taste over the course of your. Uh, Treatment protocol, I've, I've seen a lot, tried a lot, uh, experienced different side effects from all the different corners, whether it was, you know, the nausea, fatigue, hair loss on the chemo side, the radiation, the bad uh, sunburn and difficulty swallowing. I know I've had uh, bowel obstructions, I've had uh, bowel resections, everything that be thrown at that. Um, and then came along immunotherapy. And, you know, when it was initially pitched to me, I was, you know, Inpatient, I was coming off of that bowel resection, um, off of the surgery, after a latest treatment had failed, and they had noticed that um, there was some new development in the liver. So I was highly skeptical. You know, it was like this hot new thing. Right. Um, but my doctor was really optimistic and explained that it had done well in other cancers. So we wouldn't be the first group uh, to go in with that, but I would be one of the first to get it for Hodgkin lymphoma. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and you know, explained that it, you know harness the immune system, um, took off the brakes, the immune system could do its job, do the thing it's designed to do, which is awesome. So getting into that and realizing that I wouldn't wouldn't have the same side effects that I was so used to with chemo, I was used to feeling terrible all the time and not wanting to get out of bed, not being able to, you know, live my day to day. Um, That was incredible. And again, my skepticism going into this, I was just waiting for the next shoot to drop. I'm like, when am I going to feel sick? When am I going to have this never-ending fatigue? When am I going to throw up my lunch? But that's Uh, just people that live in Brooklyn anyway. That's true. (laughs) That that is what we're used to. You know, if you don't live in that bubble. I thought that was Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was Staten Island, right. So it felt one and the same. But yeah, I was just surprised, I guess, shocked more like it that I... Felt as good as I did, and I very cautiously, you know, stepped out of my comfort zone, get got back in the game, started working, started reverse, started part time. I was commuting into the city from my parents' house. I know, like getting off the train by myself and not feeling like I was going to pass out was crazy. Walking up those steps. Oh yeah. Oh Oh, my. Oh the stairs. Forget about it. Walking down the street, it just you know with the you know heavy bag and everything, and being able to do that was crazy and redefining that independence I think was the biggest thing for me right being able to go off on my own you know start to make money on my own become financially independent socially independent 
all those things were, you know, huge milestones for me that immunotherapy allowed me to have because I was able to start working, start making money, start being paid for my brain again, right. which is what I really wanted to do. Yes. I was like, let me think yes. and let me go out there, get an apartment, do all right. the young adult things. So by comparison, Paul, you had standard of care, right? ABVD? Yeah. Yeah, and the Red Death. I had the easy result. cancer, apparently. Well, yeah, right. You had 2B, not 2A. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, uh, my my treatment was uh, luckily for me, I guess, uh, a lot uh, a lot less. Uh, it was a lot more by the book. So it was the ABVD six uh, six cycles and uh, some just a little bit of thrown in radiation and done just for fun. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? Because you know, <laughs> I know the cancer's gone, but we're not really sure it's gone. Yeah, yeah. So we want to really be sure. So let's give you some extra long term effects, right? So, <laughs> Um, so yeah, so now I have uh, like massive heartburn and, uh, God knows what else to my, rep- uh, my, uh, geo, uh, what do you call it? Gastrointestinal. Gastro- yeah. Uh, yeah, gastrointestinal tract. So. Well, we also talked about that on the panel too, is the late effects and the yep. side effects and even, and, and immunotherapy presents potentially less side effects because it's more tailored to you. But I want to go back to use an expression that it's a wonky expression. It's a good one. Take the brakes off. And they spent an entire panel talking about what taking the brakes off your immune system means, can you articulate in, in the layperson terms? Because we can say it in the layperson terms. Yeah, I know that was um, when it was initially explained to me, and then I would have my physician repeat this back to me multiple times that still just didn't make sense. Um, so cancer cells can evade immune detection. Um, they have this ability to say, hey, we're not here. Don't bother me. Go to sleep. Take a nap. <laughs> um, but... Uh, some immunotherapy treatments, and the one that I had in particular, which is the PD-1 um, checkpoint inhibitor, nivolumab, um, was basically saying, hey, wake up. There's actually something over here. Go attack this. Go, go, go. Um, so letting the cells do the things they're going to do, which is destroy cancer cells. So waking them up and sending them out on the attack. They go and do that as they're supposed to do and keep things in check. Um, of course, there is a potential for, you know, other potential side effects that you wouldn't see with other with other treatments. But I was very fortunate that my side effects were minimal. And again, like I'm here living, breathing out in the world, living a normal life because of that. So we talk about clinical trials as the end game here, because the more people that go on them, the better the data and the science. But when we're talking about a targeted therapy that is based on almost an end of one decision on your genes, where do double blind studies come in? And, and that's another FDA questionable thing. And how do we get people the right treatments if we don't have enough volume of patients to compare and contrast? So do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, that's super wonky, but it, it's a huge discussion in our sector. No, I agree. And I think there is one, there is there's certainly demand for these clinical trials and for these targeted treatments and driving access to patients and giving them the information that they need to make an informed decision makes a lot of sense. Um, especially, you know, when we start to improve diagnostics and figure out better ways to match patients to trials. Um, for a lot of the trials that I went on, it was very much a, well, this is what we have available. It may work. It may not work. It seems like over time we'll be able to develop, you know, better indicators to suggest, okay, we have a much higher probability this will work for you. Here you go. Try this on the buffet of treatments. This is the right one for you. This is the best possible match instead of kind of going in blind. Um, so if you can get more folks aligned with those trials, make people excited and make it easier for them to get on. Um, I would say that one of the key things also when you're talking about you know getting more folks involved in trials is 
you know, how to sign up. Like, like how, how do you literally go and say, hey, I want to be on this trial? A lot of people are directed to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a great resource. But, but it's very... It's overwhelming. <laughs> it is... Uh, it's a dumpster fire, basically. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is out of control. Like, you can read, you know, one sentence and be like, I don't know what half of those words mean. Right. What does this mean for me? Uh, so there's definitely a big opportunity there to have more clarifying resources, um, having it more easily to digest for patients, for folks that have chemo brain at that exact moment, even right. if they are, you know, have a PhD at, you know, and in biology, if you are in the fatigue state, you might be with as a cancer patient, clinicaltrials.gov was going to give you a, a giant headache. Right. Uh, so it's, it, it is its own comorbidity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even with that too, you know, so let's say you, you see the trial or, you know, maybe you're lucky. Like I, I was very um, fortunate that my physician, you know, gave me a short list of trials at, at certain key junctures and re- review it. But then it came down to, okay, wait, how do I contact the person to get signed up? So there's right. a, there's like a number there. You could like leave a message. Right, right. Can we get to email? Like, can we get to messaging? Like what? We got to develop that a bit right. more. And also determining whether there's things are actually available, updating the information so patients can see, Hey, this trial is in fact still recruiting. It's recruiting at these sites. Here are so many slots that are available. Right. So they can take a best guess. There have been times when I would fly out to a trial site only to be told, hey, we actually filled this cohort. Right. We're not gonna have any availability for months. And when you're a patient and things are, you know, I aggressive metastatic disease. You know, I don't have three months to wait. Right. So I wish I had known that before I, uh, you know, booked that plane ticket. Well, that's the point, too, is we have, you know, there's all this. Um, it's easy to complain that trial enrollment is so low and they're blaming patients all the time for that. All the time. But we've done, and Mallory can attest to this, ad nauseum shows on destigmatizing trials and people who survive trials. We even did an entire annual partnership with a drug company, Randavulumab around what it means to be on a trial and it's okay to do that because you're not a guinea pig and you're not at risk and should we just rename them to clinical trials to like become wolverine you know those types of conversations <laughs> that but, would work for me <laughs> but we have we have data again part of our research that uh, one of our board members did with me that 70 percent of patients who express interest in a trial that they match to never gain access to that trial for many of the reasons that you described from your experience but also you know, just so the wonky way to say that is cholesterol in the value chain. But what that means is people fuck up and, you, <laughs> you know, and it's human error. And we you can't account for transition and transients and the site center changing and not being told the, the trial's over or they moved or the person in charge of it quit or got fired. HR issues. There's all these things that get in the way of you getting to the right medicine. And it's just too easy to throw us as patients under the bus for that. Completely agree. Yeah. Expletive and all. <laughs> By the way, we're not FDA, F- FCC, anything on this show. So okay, that's awesome. What right. the hell you want? So all the seven dirty words. All the <laughs> the George Carlin words. Yeah. We can say them. All of them at once. Yes, there is exactly. no country that has yet contacted us saying that we curse and will no longer be available in that country. So we're <laughs> yes, good. We are good to go. So, Paul, as far as like you're now five and a half years out, you're, recent, you're married two years now yep. to a wonderful woman. Amazing. And your life is what it is today, but we talk about consequence of cure. But you've chosen as an advocate to really not just drink the stupid cancer Kool-Aid, but really jump into what it means to make it suck less for other people. Um, yep. You run for Team Stupid Cancer. Talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that I was always into uh, before the diagnosis was just health, gym, uh, proper 
eating and way of life, uh, which is ironic just because after the diagnosis, it was just like, really? I did all this just to be still be diagnosed with cancer? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I did take a, a, a mini break just to live life a little bit and be like, ah, okay. Now then I, uh, I calmed down. And I'm like, yeah, I still do want to be healthy. So um, after, after I came back to that realization, I, um, so I definitely got more serious about it um, earlier this year, in fact, um, because I was just eating whatever I wanted again. And uh, I realized that's not a life I, I'm really happy with. So I decided to go back on a not strict diet, but certainly a healthier diet. I, I uh, So I've lost like 12 or 14 pounds and uh, been back at the gym. And part of that is also just running a lot more. And uh, so Team Stupid Cancer uh, has uh, allowed me to just get out there, put the word out, and uh, so I've run a few half. Uh, I've run one half marathon uh, for the United uh, New York City half earlier this year in uh, March. I do a bunch of mud runs uh, of varying difficulties just to because I'm. Let's be just honest. Just for the hell of it. <laughs> well, let's be honest. A lot. Of, do you really like running? Like who of the runners out there? I, every runner I talk to, it's like who really likes running. I mean, when I run, run, you, it's yeah. a really? nice, it's a nice, it's really good. They're endorphins. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's only the feeling after you're finished running. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the post half marathon and you're like, someone just carry me. <laughs> well, yeah. Afterwards, you feel very accomplished. During it, you're like, really? I'm still going. Oh, yeah. yeah. I still have to get going. So the mud runs, at least for me, um, I, I guess I've offended some of the hardcore runners. Uh, <laughs> the mud runs for me, at least make me feel like, oh, okay, I could distract myself from this uh, thing called running with some obstacles in between and uh i can i can do some strength things in the in the interim and then get back to running uh right after that so i get these little breaks in between of uh obstacles so uh i've done some uh some spartan races some tough mudders some uh, uh rock solid mud runs warrior dash you name it so i have done a whole bunch of that wearing all my stupid cancer gear and just at least getting the word out that way that um there are ways to uh you know continue to to stay healthy and and uh, try to you know improve lifestyle even after a cancer diagnosis so which goes back to the other side of the coin conversation where you do start off healthy and how could this happen to me then you fall into the i can't do anything right now and all i know is health and wellness and then you have to build yourself back up to what that means and we do a wonderful partnership with the Ullman cancer fund out of baltimore which has a program called cancer to 5k right which helps young adults rehabilitate themselves and it trains them on how to basically run a 5k yeah which speaks to health and wellness uh, ariella what was your health and wellness story if you have one oh yeah so i also um was an active runner you know prior to the cancer diagnosis and did you enjoy running i was i really loved uh <laughs> sprinting i was like i did 200 um sometimes 400 relay if i was like really pushing um i was big hurdler actually that was my favorite like doing 55 so and again not full running i'm not just, full running. I'm just i like the jumping. around now okay uh and then you know like the high jump yeah lots of jumping that was really making leaping across the air feeling like superman that was my jam nice. um so that was always you know a key thing for me and that was also a social activity for me i would run with friends from home the park near my house i would run with friends in school and that was actually one of the key triggers um, when I realized I was getting sick was my inability to run the same distances. It became it cut, cut, cut shorter and shorter. And there'd be times when I would not be able to go, you know, like 10 feet without wheezing. And that's when I really noticed, OK, this is this is a lot more you know, intense. than I realized this probably isn't a cold or pneumonia like why 
one doctor thought or allergies and it's like oh no this is something else so you know i kept pushing kept you know insisting on you know them revetting me eventually switched doctors and that doctor i switched to was like you need to get a lung i sorry you need to get a chest x-ray we're gonna do that right now say they're already offering you new body parts <laughs> i was like thank you like, that'd be nice we too. can rebuild like, her we can make her set. stronger faster oh, one day <laughs> that's what i would like first time you walk in here you go new right. set freshly clean for you yep. now uh yeah so that was um you know, that was such a key part of my identity and then being sick and being bedridden and being barely able to walk down the street and carry my own bag. That was, a, that was a, from a self-esteem perspective, that was, that really sucked. Uh, that, uh, that was brutal. And it took a long time um, for me to get re- readjusted. You know, I lost a lot of my flexibility, a lot of the core strength, a lot of right. muscle and everything. I had this um, one, op- one wonderful opportunity when I was you know, kind of stuck at home. Um, uh, Kula, uh, they have a group where they'll send folks out to do uh, gentle yoga. And it just made me realize how far gone I was when I could barely balance on right. one leg. Yeah. And that's like, where, how did I get this far? And then I've, I've been ramping up and I've done, I've started with yoga, Pilates don't run as much as I used to. I, I think I still feel kind of disheartened from an endurance standpoint. Might but get back to it. Yeah, building my way up and like I strength training. I smell a Ragnar for her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I smell it, a Ragnar for you. It's on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's been good, though. It's been nice to be able to walk around the city and be able to enjoy and appreciate right. that. Exactly. So let's then uh, wrap. we got about 10 minutes left. So I really want to talk about peer support and how you found resources. And we talked about you, Paul, um, who I, you said on the, some kind of friend recommended us or something like that. Yeah. And you just discovered us, and then you were kind of trepidatious and jumping in the pool. And then you did jump in the pool. By yeah, I, I, used, I used myself into the deep end uh, from the <laughs> from the kiddie pool side. No, because uh, there sure. are people that uh, that come to CancerCon as their like point of entry to the community, and that really Which is, is already a pretty big leap of faith for it's someone huge, who's yeah. who's not really sure about what to expect. Yeah, so I mean, like, start with our Facebook forums or online community, po- you know, um, uh, what uh, whatever the the, the community. Boards, thank you. The, the, the message the, boards, the board, the message boards, words that I'm not going to say in order. Chemo brain, um, and uh, <laughs> you know, our, our meetups that happen all around the country, and we work with cancer centers on their their peer matching and their, their insta peer, insta peer, and our mobile go. app that's peer matching. You know, but to jump in at CancerCon, but it all comes back to where do you find out about your community out there? And Ariella, did you know about anything in the young adult world, or was like literally meeting me the first thing that you knew about? Uh, yeah, well, you were obviously. You it's know, all about me, the, right? Of course, yeah. it's always interesting. Yeah, why not? in your head? Why not? She's learning, real, she's learning really early. So. I know how these things work. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that the people I my rider does were the uh, relapse Hodgkins group, right? Just because we had all dealt with the same shit. <laughs> that yeah. was, you know, it was a non-judgmental space where we could share all the intimate details of our lives. And that was really difficult for me because I'm typically a a pretty, not shy person, but I uh, was less inclined to share like the nitty gritty of all my organs and their inner workings with the rest of the world. So it was great to have a place where I could ask questions, even the questions that I thought would be like too quote, quote unquote, dumb or silly to ask my physician. I could, you know, kind of initially pitch it to this group of, you know, highly receptive people and, 
they had tons of uh, suggestions for me and it helped that it was you know through Facebook something I was already on and I had looked at a bunch of forums when I first signed up but it didn't seem as conducive um, to chatting and to having light conversation um, whereas this forum was so I right. feel really grateful to that just having this highly specific group of people that knew exactly what I was experiencing yeah I know and, and that's what it comes down to is where are the like-minded people that you need to know exist and are you ready to talk to them about what I, I tell the story of my first uh, engagement in pure matching, and I went to Gilda's Club here in the city, and they do great work. Gilda's Club but, is awesome. But I, when I went, I was the only person in the room that was under the age of 70, and it was very uncomfortable. They didn't have young adult programs 20 oh, years yeah. ago, but it, it was it was very threatening, and they made you fill out this really big form about what you're going through, and I didn't really care to do that because I'm just worried about, am I going to be live in six months? And, uh, you know, so I, I never went back. <laughs> <laughs> I just started the charity 10 years later. But it, it really comes down to what do you have the right to be made aware of? And when can you make a better decision on what's best for you? Which was the entire thread of our panel session at the Washington Post. Do you feel like any decisions for both of you were made for you? And later on, it would have been nice to know that you could have had better decision-making opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, from my side, uh, certainly in terms of my fertility options and just overall uh, quality of life uh, type decisions, because again, you know, for my diagnosis, because of how bulky it was, I guess my doctor was just, okay, life first, quality later, uh, which is not the right approach at all. And no. I think I think now with stuff that you've been doing that we've started to get the dialogue going about, okay, they're both very important. You have to talk both at the same time. It, it can't be one or the other. Um, but uh, back then, uh, and I say back then, even just five and a half years ago, I think that wasn't uh, on the radar of all the young adult oncologists for whatever young adult oncology was back then. So uh, fertility-wise for me, I, I definitely didn't have a lot of options with what my decisions were going to be at that point. It was just you have to get treated. And then afterwards, oh, by the way, yeah, you should still be okay fertility-wise, and you should still be fine with uh, uh, long-term effects. It's not going to be anything major, I think. So uh, I, I wish there would have been people or resources or time that I could have consulted with at that point. But uh, luckily, it, it you know it, we went through with everything, and so far, so good. And your story? I would say for for the most part, uh, I got really lucky with the you know the care team that I had at my initial institution. But I will say when I started going off into the being my own clinical trial consultant, um, certain things happen at certain trial sites that you know had I had more time or less of sense of urgency, I would not have agreed to. Um, one example was one institution I went to visit, which I ultimately did not pursue a trial at. Um, they demanded a liver biopsy. I was there by myself. I had flown out. You know, I thought it was going to be, you know, an, just one overnight trip. Um, but again, being desperate, you know, if an institution of a certain level of gravitas tells me we need a liver biopsy from you in order to move forward, potentially save your life, we need you to stay overnight. So book another hotel room. You're going to be here alone. Um, let's get cracking. Let's cut open that liver. Uh, you know, I, I did what I was told. Right. Um and because at that was, point, everyone always thinks that the doctors know what's best for you, and you why not listen to your doctor? Exactly. Right. And just being alone and terrified, you know, it, it seemed like the right thing to do. So when I come to the table, and I remember that was one of the scariest moments, being like thousands of miles away from home, maybe hundreds. It was a far away from home. Uh, going under the knife and, you know, being in a hospital bed and having to be watched because they're worried I might bleed out in a hotel room. 
Um, that was terrifying. Um, but I will say that there were other moments where I had to make difficult decisions and it was ultimately my decision. And that was almost scarier. Yeah. Like, who am I to make a choice? And that's why I think having access to better res- resources and having access to um, some of the early stage research from patients or educating them on how to vet trials and right. how to vet treatments. I would have loved that. And I, a lot of it was very much learn as I went. Um, one time I made a treatment decision in large part to the fact that one was available sooner than the other, maybe by a couple months. And, you know, and, and in that moment, you know, who knows if it would have made sense to wait for the other one. I will never know. Right. Um, but I think framing it around, you know, what is actually you should vet a trial for just being available now. Is that a worthwhile consideration for me? It was, but that might not be a rational choice. Right. It's about what's right for you in the moment, but you deserve to know what your decisions are. Absolutely. So we're going to leave the show at that. Really fascinating discussion. I'd like you to end with each of you. Um, how did you, what was your principal mechanism of coping through this? And what's your message to the young adult diagnosed today? Let's start with Paul. Uh, so my principal mechanism was humor. So uh, I think uh, anyone who knows me in uh, IRL in real life uh, <laughs> knows uh, that I uh, am ridiculously sarcastic and I uh, pretty much can't answer questions seriously without giving a, a stupid answer first. So um, even throughout my whole diagnosis, I was uh, pretty much just taking it very lightly, at least on the outside. I, I recognize the gravity of it, but um, in terms of any kind of conversations, I would always downplay it and give a, 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 a sarcastic answer about it because it just kept me, uh, it kept me feeling like it was just, you know, something I'm going to get through and it's just, you know, no big deal. Maybe it was my just internal defense system, so to speak. But I think by keeping positive spirits and by keeping my, uh, keeping myself, uh, thinking like everything was going to be fine, whether I was feeling fine or not, I think it uh, helped push me through and helped realize that there was still a piece of my old life that was still, that I kept trying to bring back into whatever my current situation was. And, and, you know, grounding into that, I think was extremely helpful in just keeping me strong and keeping me, you know, from slipping uh, further into the the pr- potential depression or the the misery of the the symptoms I was going through, sure. And what do you tell that first timer at CancerCon? So the first timer, I would I would have to tell, especially since this is an advocacy um, uh, segment, uh, I would definitely say you are your own best judge of what you're going through, what you need, and uh, what decisions you should be making for your life. So. If you feel like you need to, you know, talk to other doctors in order to get better opinions, go do that. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of other considerations you need to take into account in terms of, you know, what your specific situation is. But uh, talk to other doctors, you know, get other opinions. If you think that the quality of life that you're going to be experiencing because of a certain treatment isn't worth the treatment, then you can make that decision. Um, only you would know whether that's worthwhile or not. And in general, just, you know, realize that it's your life. You have to live it also. Well said. Ariella? I would say that uh, one of the key ways I coped was just trying to maintain a sense of normalcy. So when I was first diagnosed, I was going to my junior year of college. I refused to leave school. I set up my 
my initial chemo infusion schedule to happen on Friday. I set up my classes Monday through Thursday, recuperate over the weekend, and I was back in class on Monday. And I think that really helped, you know, reframe things, gave me other things to think about and other concerns, other things to be excited about. So I wasn't just basing my self-esteem and my sense of worth on the outcome of a cancer treatment, which had I done that, you know, the first few years would have been really brutal. Um, but I had, you know, I had grades, I had social activities, I was, you know, I had my sorority, I had my friends, I had my family, and just, you know, participating in the things that I could participate in, um, making that gut check decision, okay, if I'm well enough, I will go out and do this thing, even if I'm a little bit tired, because it's worth it to make this memory and enjoy the life that I have right now, enjoy the freedom that I do have. And then when I had less freedom, reflecting on those times when I did have a lot of fun and appreciating that. And just accepting that, you know, things might not be great right now, but they could be good again. They have been good. And to appreciate those memories. I think just also reframing my mindset around, you know, uh, how I evaluated myself and the track I was on. You know, going to a highly competitive school, I, you know, everyone is on a certain career path. Um, one of the ways I coped was just, you know, accepting that I was going to be on another track. And that, um, you know, this would come with new restrictions, but also new opportunities. And it, it's placed me in this really wonderful space yeah. that I'm now in. And I'm glad that I was able to open myself up to that. And working with, you know, holistic medicine doctors and, and you know, therapists and, and all of that and focusing on mental health and self-care helped me get to that point. If not for them, you know, my outlook would have been drastically different. And so I would say to folks that are just getting into the game, um, you know, do focus on mental health, focus on self-care. You may not realize you need it, especially when you say to shock, but investing the time in those resources will pay dividends down the line and how you make the best choice for you, that you're not making it out of fear, that you're making the best rational decision for yourself. Um, I would also say that there are no stupid questions. None of us coming, most of us coming into this do not have a medical degree, do not have a Absolutely. degree in biology. You know, I went with like some econ philosophy and politics. That's not going to help me <laughs> figure out the best clinical trial. That's okay. You talk to the experts, ask and ask and ask again, ask for clarification. Do not worry that you're badgering them. That, that's what they're there for. Right. And ultimately it's up to you to make the choice. Um, and just know that there are resources out there. And again, just you can ask to corroborate with anyone and everyone. Uh, and then you make, you call the shots. You have the best Twitter handle I've ever <laughs> seen. You are online at Cruella underscore Cheville. Cruella Cheville. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cruella nice. Cheville. <laughs> Paul, you're I on try, Twitter? I try. <laughs> I am on Twitter, but you will never be able to figure out my Twitter handle. It's got to be something with sports. Um, no, you Running would think that. But no, it was <laughs> it was uh, a throwback to back in the day when you would throw letters and numbers together because it formed sort of words in leet, like leet speak. Yes. Oh, you're such a nerd. Thank Noobs. you. Noobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So b o w one three r eight four at Twitter. Oh dear God. Yeah. Don't don't even try to find me. All right. Well, Paul Berman, Ariella <laughs> Cheville, thank you for an exciting and engaging roundtable on advocacy. You guys get. Your own round of special applause. Yay! Glad I could come back from that earlier comment. <laughs> come a long way in this area. All right, Mal, are we ready for our closing sequence? Let's do this. All right. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets 
Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show, the 405th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Join our community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our awesome products in the Stupid Cancer Store. You can even learn how to host your own meetup. Consider running for the Team Stupid Cancer. And of course, subscribe to this podcast, all online at stupidcancer.org. Again, thank you, Paul Berman and Ariella Chaville. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of my whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right back here on the next exciting podcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks.